today we're going to be talking about living in line with the gospel. And it's interesting as I was thinking about this, because the first day that we got the carpet and we were ready to start putting it down, we spent probably two to three hours laying out lines. That was the first thing we had to do, was figure out where do we start this carpet it's carpet tiles, in case you don't know. It's not just a big roll. And so you start with tiles and you want to work your way out so that when you get to the end, you don't have these tiny little you know, pieces around the end. And you kind of want everything to be centered. And, and you know, we thought about uh, the center aisle of the sanctuary and just wanting kind of a full piece of carpet going down the center aisle. So thinking about all these things and laying out the lines and how crucial it is then when you go to lay down the carpet tiles to stay on the line. Because if you start getting off the lines, it's going to mess something up somewhere else. And we found this uh, particularly, it, I, can you, I don't know if you can picture back to the way our church was laid out. Uh, but now there's an area where you can enter into the main part of the sanctuary, the main doors. And you can now go around to the wing and come back through a little hallway back out to the foyer. Now, here's the problem. We had to bring carpet in, go around that loop and back out, and hope that the seams lined up. So we did this the first time, and guess what happened? They didn't line up. Why? Each piece was put down, first of all, in line with the line that we had put down. And then we, we put each piece in line with that one and in line with that one in line with that one and we came all the way back and the seams were off just, just like half an inch. It wasn't much. Don't worry about it. We hid it underneath the door. You'll never notice. It's okay. We figured it out. It's fine. But why? Because every time we put a carpet down, a tile, there was the chance of getting out of alignment just the smallest fraction of an inch. A sixteenth, a thirty-second, a sixty-fourth, something that your brain can't, your your eye can't even see. And and, and yet, when you start multiplying that over 20, 30 carpet tiles, you're off. And that's what we found. Now, we fixed it when we went the other way. Um, I, I laid out a bunch of lines and then I wasn't here for the day that the guys put it in, but I, I checked. Good job, guys. That looks really good. <laughs> looks like it worked out. Either that or you faked it really well. So great job. Um, but staying in line with, with the, the seams and the plan has been so important throughout laying down the carpet. And I'll tell you one of the frustrating things we found throughout this project is we are working with existing conditions. So we're putting in a lot of new New windows, new walls, um, new carpet, all this sorts of stuff. But the hardest thing to deal with throughout this project has been the old stuff. Not that it's bad, sometimes, <laughs> but it's, it's not always square. It's not always in line with what it should be. And so you start laying down your... Now, maybe it's off. Maybe we're off. Well, I'll say that. But something's off. And so you start laying it down. And you go, oh, we're perfectly straight and perfectly square. And then you get to that one wall and you go, what in the world happened here? It's all crooked. Today, as we look at Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, we're going to look at this statement that Paul makes about being in line with the gospel. 
that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the truth of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and the fact that we can only be saved through him, is, is a line. It's, it's this guiding mark that guides everything we do and say and are as individual Christians and specifically as a church. So we're going to look at this passage. Let me read it. It's not very long. Verses 11 through 14 of Galatians chapter 2. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles. Because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy. So that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile, and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Now, Paul's going to go on and talk about what was going on and how he interacts with Cephas or Peter in this situation um, and he's going to go into kind of what the law is and salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And he'll go on to those things. We'll deal with that next week. But I just want to really focus in on this idea of living in line with the gospel. Living in line with the gospel. And so the first thing we need to look at is what's going on here in Antioch. What is the problem? Because there is a huge problem. You have two apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul and Peter, and they're going at it. Paul is confronting Peter to his face. So we see this here, uh, verse 11, he's called Cephas. And again, that was Peter's Aramaic name. Peter or Petros would have been his Greek name, same guy. And it says uh, that this trouble involves Paul and Cephas, but it even spills over. Verse 13 says other Jews are drawn into this and even Barnabas. Barnabas is a friend of Paul's. Uh, he traveled with Paul on some of his early missionary journeys. Paul's response shows that this is a huge deal. Look at how Paul describes it. it says in verse 11, I opposed him to his face. Paul got right up in Peter's face and is saying, you're wrong. What you're doing here is wrong. This is a big deal. Verse 11, he goes on, he says, Peter stood condemned. That means that to Paul, Peter's actions were so inherently wrong that it should have been obvious to everybody. He stood condemned. Merely by what he did, it was wrong. He stood condemned. Verse 14 says that Paul publicly confronts Peter. I said to Cephas, in front of them all. This is not Paul pulling aside Peter and saying, hey, let's not air our dirty laundry. You know, we need to talk about that. There's a time and a place for that. But what Peter was doing was a public offense. He was publicly wrong. And so Paul confronts him publicly. What was the problem? And here's where we get into some nitty-gritty details of their culture that's hard for us to understand. And it's easy to gloss over this. But the main problem here had to do with what's known as table fellowship. Table fellowship. I don't think for the most part, 
we give a whole lot of consideration to somebody coming over to our house and sharing a meal with us or us going over to somebody else's house and sharing a meal with them. But this was a huge deal for the first century church. The first century church was made up of those who were Jewish by birth, by upbringing, had converted to Christianity, become Christians through Jesus Christ, but still followed their Jewish customs and laws. Then you have the Gentiles, those that were not Jewish. They didn't follow the Jewish law at all. They received Jesus as their Savior. They all, on their good days, saw this as one church. Yes, we are one church in Jesus Christ. And a problem had come up, and we've talked about this before. Did the Gentiles need to follow the Jewish law? And for the most part, that had been settled and would be settled. No, they don't need to follow the Jewish law. But here's the problem of this passage. The Jewish Christians, many of them, were still following the Jewish law. And the Jewish law forbade a Jewish person from sharing a meal with a Gentile. You couldn't eat with them. You couldn't sit at the same table with them. You certainly couldn't go over to their house. Because the Jewish people were to be pure and holy. They were to separate from the world to be God's holy and chosen people. We see this in Deuteronomy chapter 14. The chapter lays out many specific dietary requirements, specifically eat these animals, don't eat these animals. There's a whole list of them. And God gave this to his people. And the section starts at the beginning of chapter 14, verse 2 of Deuteronomy. God says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Out of all the peoples on the face of the earth, the Lord has chosen you to be his treasured possession. Throughout the Old Testament, God is teaching his people and through them, everybody else. You cannot just live however you want. There is a difference between your ways and God's ways. And he shapes this Old Testament law and he calls these people, Abraham's family, into this relationship with him to teach them there is a difference between your way and my way. You are to follow my way. And all of this is preparing them for the coming Messiah that would fulfill what they couldn't do on their own. But they needed to understand that they couldn't do it on their own. They needed to start look in the right, looking in the right direction. And that's what the Old Testament law is all about. And fundamental to it is this idea of being separate and being holy. At the end of this section on the dietary laws, De- Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 21, God says to the people again, but you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Gentiles, non-Jewish people. Were considered unclean. They weren't following the God of the Old Testament. They didn't follow the dietary restrictions. And so, in the Jewish mindset, they could not associate with the Gentiles because they were supposed to, the Jewish people, were supposed to be holy. Holy means separated, set apart. The Jewish people were to be set apart for God and to mix with the Gentiles and share a meal with them was to be less than who they were. Fast forward now. Jesus has come. Jesus, the Son of God, has come. And Jews and Gentiles are being saved by Jesus Christ. They are being made holy 
by Jesus. This is the great joy of salvation through Jesus Christ. You're not made holy by what you try to do because that never got anybody there in the first place. It only pointed out the need for holiness. Jesus comes and he says, I make you holy through his death on the cross and his resurrection. But if the Jewish Christians still held to their Jewish laws, they can't eat with the Gentile Christians. Now take that a step further, because you might think, okay, so they can't share a meal together. Fundamental to the New Testament church was a meal, a specific meal. We share this meal once a month. Some churches do it every Sunday. It's the Lord's Supper. If a Jewish Christian thought they couldn't eat with a Gentile Christian, then they couldn't even share the Lord's Supper together. We call it communion because it's an expression of the communion we have with each other because of the communion we have with God through Jesus Christ. The whole concept of communion is destroyed if I'm better than you because I'm Jewish and you're not. And this concept threatened to rip apart the early church. And so into this picture comes Cephas, Peter. We know some things about Peter. Let me remind you of some things. Peter tended to be very bold in his faith. Very bold. I love Peter. He makes me laugh. Very bold in his faith, but also incredibly impulsive or impetuous. The guy didn't always think things through. Maybe you can identify with that. Don't point to anybody. It's mean. In Matthew chapter 14, uh, verses 22 through 33, we have the famous story about Jesus walking on water. And it's the situation is there's this massive storm. The disciples are out in a boat. Jesus isn't with them. And Jesus comes walking on the water. And Peter, being Peter, is like, hey, Jesus... Call to me, and I want to come out on the water with you. Beautiful story of it's safer to be where Jesus is than to be in the boat, where it seems like it's an awesome story, right? So Peter gets out of the boat. He's walking on water with Jesus. How cool is that? Go, Peter. And then right away he doubts, and he starts sinking down. Peter has a hard time getting out of his own head sometimes. In Matthew chapter 26, verses 31 to 36, Jesus is telling his disciples of his coming arrest and his upcoming crucifixion and the fact that all of his disciples are going to scatter. And Peter, again, being Peter, no way. Not me, Lord. I I would never do that. That's not me. I'm the guy that sticks with you through thick and thin. Peter says, I'll never fall away. Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. John 18.10 tells us then when, when Jesus actually is arrested, what does Peter do? Impetuous Peter who doesn't think everything through. Pulls out his sword, lops the guy's ear off. He's like, yeah, I'm ready to fight for Jesus. And Jesus says, uh-uh, it's not the way this fight is going to be won. And yet just a short time later, after Jesus' arrest, during his trial, three times Peter is confronted. Don't you know that guy? Aren't you one of those? Aren't you one of his followers three times? Peter says, "Uh uh-uh. 
I don't even know the guy. That's Peter for you. He's such a great hero of the faith. And yet he had a lot of struggles. This is something I love about God's word and the heroes of the faith. Because I look at them, and while there are things that they do that I think, man, I don't know if I would have the guts and the faith to do that, there are mistakes that they make that I think, yeah, that, I can really identify with that one. These are no perfect people. They're real people that we can identify with. Peter also had a unique perspective, a unique situation where Jesus confronts him on something, challenges him, changes his mindset. In Acts chapter 10, verses 9 through 16, Peter has this vision, three times it happens, of a sheet lowering from heaven, and on the sheet are all sorts of animals, animals both clean and unclean. And a voice from heaven says, Peter, get up, kill, and eat. And Peter's like, yeah, you're not going to catch me on that one. No way, Lord, I would never eat something unclean. No way. And then the voice says, Peter, don't call unclean what I'm now calling clean. It's like he's saying, Peter, wake up. I'm doing something new here. Your old way of thinking doesn't match with what I'm doing. You need to watch out. Don't cling too tightly to your way of thinking. I'm doing something new. Peter wakes up, and at that moment, there's a knock on his door. And who is it? It's a bunch of Gentiles. And they want Peter to come to their house. And the light bulb goes on in Peter's head. Aha! This is what God was talking about. I can go with them because God is changing. He's doing something different. These things are no longer unclean because of Jesus Christ. Now, you would think that would have sealed the deal for Peter, and he would have never have struggled with this again. But he's Peter, and he's a lot like us. And so here, this guy who's gone through all these amazing experiences, who had this incredible moment of being taught by Jesus, don't call something unclean that I've made clean, here he is in Antioch. So what's going on? Peter comes to Antioch, and just like he normally did, he hangs out with the Gentile believers. He goes to their homes, they share the Lord's Supper together, they share meals together, everything's fine and wonderful, until... A group of people come from Jerusalem, some Jewish Christians. And the implication is that this group from Jerusalem was looking down on people. You you can't. You eat with the Gentiles? You're hanging out with, I mean, really? I guess that's okay for you, but I, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do it. And, And Peter's sort of like, really? Yeah, I don't. I don't really do that either. And Peter gives in to the peer pressure. He's afraid of being judged by these men. He's afraid, I guess, that they would think he's not pure enough, not righteous enough, not important enough. So what does he do? Well, he separates from the Gentiles. I'm going to be holy and not hang out with those people. Think of what that does to the Gentiles. In order for Peter to make himself think and to make others think that he is righteous, spiritual, and important, what he does is makes the Gentiles feel like they are unrighteous, unspiritual, 
and unimportant. And others are affected by his actions. As so often happens when we follow our own way of thinking instead of trusting in God and his righteousness, others get drawn into this. And they start following Peter because he was a leader. And this happens all the time. Here we have a clique in the church. We have the cool people, the the in-crowd that are more holy than others, that see themselves as better than others, and they refuse to be with these other people so that they can maintain their own self-importance. This is a difficult passage to understand and to apply today because this this problem is so foreign to us. It's, It's not something in our culture that we come up against often. But we do have similar issues. When the church is divided by race, we're doing the same thing. When the church is divided by wealth, we're doing the same thing. When the church is divided by age, we're doing the same thing. When there are groups within the church who refuse to interact with other groups, we're doing the same thing. So while we may not struggle with some sort of Jewish dietary laws, we have very similar struggles in the church today. And now I want to spend the rest of our time looking at how Paul handles this, because this is what's crucial. How does Paul deal with this? What compels him to confront Peter? Look at verse 14. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. That's what we're going to focus on right now. What was it that compelled Paul to confront Peter? Was it that Peter's actions would hurt Paul's missionary efforts to spread the gospel? That that Peter's actions and attitude were not an effective way to reach the Gentiles? Was that what compelled Paul? Was it that Peter's actions would hurt church growth? These Gentiles aren't going to feel welcomed at the church if if you guys won't even eat with them. Maybe for Paul it was an opportunity to gain authority or influence. Here's Peter, and he's clearly doing something wrong, and Paul can kind of one-up him and look a little bit better than him. Maybe for Paul this was a way to build his type of church. Well, my church will get bigger while, you know, the Jerusalem church, they're not as good. We're better than them. These are all kind of pragmatic issues. It's a question of what works. Is it effective to reach the Gentiles by refusing to eat with them? No, it's not effective. Would it hurt church growth? Yes, it would hurt church growth. Is it good for Peter, or for Paul rather, to be seen as a strong leader? Yeah, it's it's good for him. Should he kind of build his platform and help others to see how important he is so that he can spread the gospel? Well, certainly that would, I suppose, help to spread the gospel. But is that what Paul's dealing with here? No. What is it that compels Paul to confront Peter? When I saw that they were not 
acting in line with the truth of the gospel. That's why Paul confronts Peter. It wasn't just that Peter's actions might cause trouble. It's that Peter's actions were out of line. Another translation says out of step with the gospel. They were contrary. Paul uses the word in verse 13, hypocrisy. It was against what they said they believed. They were living something different than what they believed. For Paul, and I pray for us, when the gospel is believed, it changes us. It must change us. And it does, in fact, change how we act, specifically how we treat other people. So why? Why were their actions out of line with the gospel? Well, think about it. They were treating the Gentiles as if they were different. Maybe in their minds it was, well, they're sinners. And they weren't wrong in this. The gospel says we are all sinners. But but notice what the gospel says. We are all sinners. So, you know, Peter, quit eating with yourself because you're a sinner too. So if you can't associate with sinners, can't hang out with yourself. The gospel says that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. They were acting like God loved them more than somebody else. And Paul's going, where did you get that from? That doesn't make sense with the baby born in the manger. With Jesus who walked among us? With the cross who pays for all of our sins? The fact that we're all sinners and we can only be saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ? He says, that's the gospel and you're living something different. Paul understood some very important truths about the church. And when I say the church, I don't mean a building. Okay, we're spending a lot of time right now on a building. It's good. The building's a tool. You've got to keep your tools nice and sharp and clean, and that's good. Church is not a building. Never was, never will be. It's us. It's one of the neat things, I think, actually, about this renovation, is that when we moved into this room, what was supposed to be the summer of 2018 only, um, you know, I, I really thought, and maybe this is just my own weakness, I thought we were just going to struggle for a while because, I mean, let's face it, it's, it's, not, it's not the most beautiful room in the church. You know, the acoustics aren't all that great. Um, we just kind of threw a bunch of pews in here. And, and you know what's been amazing is that we moved into this ugly, not very usable room, and yet we're still the church. And it's been amazing. To hear you guys sing, to, to come together, see you fellowship, even though we don't have a nice fellowship area. We will, but, but we don't now, and, and yet people are hanging out and talking. We don't need a good building. Now, I'm glad we're doing it. I, I'm not, I want to be careful there. Pastor doesn't think we should have done it all. It's, it's good, okay? It's a little late for that. It's good. Listen to what Paul understands about the church. The church is a gospel believing community. That's what the church is. It's not a group of people that just get together because they like being together. It's it's not a social club. It's a gospel-believing community. Those saved by Jesus Christ. But we can't stop there. 
Because it's more than just a gospel-believing community. For Paul, the church is also a gospel-displaying community. In other words, our actions, our attitudes, the way we interact with one another and with those that come into our midst and those that we go out into the world and interact with, we are a display of the gospel of Jesus Christ in everything that we do. Sometimes we're a beautiful, brilliant display of the gospel. Sometimes not so much. And so Paul's confronting Peter because he's saying the gospel that you are putting on display is out of line with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're acting like God plays favorites, and that's not the gospel. The gospel, or I'm sorry, the church is a gospel-believing community. It's a gospel-displaying community. But let me take it one step farther. The church is a gospel-authenticating community. People today, just as in Paul's day, They wanted to see truth in action. They wanted to experience truth. They didn't just want to hear some arguments about it and try to be convinced of it. It's sort of that, yeah, but I want to see it. And the church is this beautiful display of the truth of the gospel. What brings such a messed up group of people together for a common mission causes humility to overflow between us, for us to love one another, to give up time, to give up money, to live our lives on mission for Jesus Christ. What is it? It's the gospel. And only the gospel. And so when people see the church being the true church, it is a verification, an authentication that the gospel is real. Now, never perfect. I'm not Jesus, you're not Jesus. But hopefully when people come in, they say, I see something there that makes no sense at all unless Jesus really is who he says he is. This is why truly believing and understanding the gospel matters. It's not enough to just do what works. It's not enough to just do what's comfortable for us. We need to constantly, as Paul talks about, look at the line of the gospel and say, where are we getting off? Maybe it's just a 30-second of an inch, but where are we getting off? Let's make sure we're in line with the gospel of Jesus Christ. What if we had the same mindset as Paul? What if we weighed everything through the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Now, for Paul, in this passage, he's looking at Peter through the gospel and saying, Peter, you're, you're out of line. Don't start there, <laughs> okay? Start with yourself. Paul talks often about how he looks at his own life, his own thinking, his own uh, uh attitude and actions. He talks about that all the time. So understand for Paul, the starting point wasn't, wow, that guy's really awful. That's not where Paul started. Start with looking at ourselves. Look at our own lives, our attitudes, our actions, our words, through the lens of the gospel. Does what you say, how you say it, the attitude with which you say it, 
Do all of those things portray the gospel just as much as what you claim to believe? I believe if we looked at things through the lens of the gospel, we would refuse to excuse sin, but we would also hold up a strong and bold grace. I believe we would love others as God loves them. Not because those people live up to our list of expectations, but because they're made in the image of God. And in the case of a fellow Christian, because they're saved by Jesus Christ. I believe we would take seriously not just what we proclaim as a church, what is taught, what is preached, what is believed, but also how we proclaim it. The attitude with which we proclaim it. Too often, I think we come at situations with fellow believers and we think, I'm right, they're wrong. And we don't pause to think, but how am I dealing with them? Because when we look at our relationship between us and God, He's always right. And we are definitely the ones that are wrong. And yet, look at how he's treated us. He loves us. And he shows us grace and mercy. Grace and mercy that never excuses the sin, but deals with it. But still shows us grace and mercy. And I pray that we would do the same with one another. Let us live in line with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that as individuals and collectively as a church, we would look at our own lives, our thoughts, our attitudes, our actions, and ask ourselves, are we living in line with the gospel? When people look at us or they come into our midst as a church or how we interact with other Christians, how we interact with the sinful fallen world, do they see the gospel of Jesus Christ? And God, I pray if, if we need to be confronted, I pray that you would bring those into our lives lovingly, but boldly, to confront us where we need to be confronted. I pray that maybe before that, we, we could just be confronted through your word and, and you would show us and we could come humbly before you and say, God, I'm out of line here. But if not, raise up those that love us to challenge us. Father, I believe in the case with Paul and Peter, their friendship continued. Their ministry together continued. The church grew and thrived both in Antioch and in Jerusalem. The problem of the Gentiles and the Jews throughout the church did not rip the church apart. Because people like Paul were willing to take a stand, and because people like Peter were willing to come back in line with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that we would have the same willingness. In your name we pray. Amen.